We are turning our attention this evening back to the book of Jonah. And by way of quick review, the book is off to a bit of a tumultuous start, is it not? It's, um, it's interesting. So far, what we've seen is we've gotten off the dock, so to speak, in the first few verses of this book is that Jonah was a prophet of Yahweh and specifically a prophet to the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And he's on the run, hence the title of the series, Running Rebel. Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, this major city, this pagan city in Assyria, the very nation from whom God was going to send a people to ultimately shake Israel to its senses by one day defeating them and hauling them away into captivity. And Jonah's charge, you will recall, was to go preach against the wickedness of the Ninevites, the people of Nineveh. We see that there in Jonah 1-2, God's command to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah didn't go to Nineveh, did he? No, instead he left his hometown of Gath-Hefer. He went down to Joppa, a port town. Uh, He boarded a ship on its way to Tarshish, a city which was about as far from Nineveh that you could get in these days. Tarshish and Nineveh, by the way, were about as close to each other as Boston and Los Angeles are on our American maps or U.S. maps. And Jonah boarded that ship on the way to Tarshish. And after the ship set sail, as we know, the Lord threw, hurled, flung a storm on the sea. And it's actually Jonah 1.4. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And that wind then in turn brought about a storm. And then that storm then caused the ship that Jonah was a passenger on to start breaking up as we see in verse 4. And then we know that there was cargo on this ship. This was a, a cargo ship of some sort. We know that Jonah wasn't the only person on this ship. We know that the ship had a captain and that the ship had these various sailors who reported to the captain of the ship. And then these seafaring men, who we know were pagans of some sort, had surely seen their their share of nasty storms in their career, in their seafaring voyages. But though they had experience, though they had done this before, this was not their first rodeo, we see them in this state of panic. Verse 5, we see them becoming afraid. And it says, every man cried out to his God. Then we see them starting to throw cargo overboard to to lighten the load on this ship. And in the case of the captain, we see him go down into the hold of the ship, probably to find more cargo to throw overboard. And instead he finds Jonah, sound asleep, fast asleep, in a deep sleep in in the hold of the ship. Then in verse six, we see this pagan sea captain urging Jonah to wake up. It says, the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And then meanwhile, above deck, you'll recall that there were the sailors who had cast lots to see who might be responsible for bringing this storm to them. We see at the end of verse seven, the lot fell on Jonah. And then naturally, the sailors had some questions about what was going on here. Right, they, This intense storm had, had suddenly come upon them and they had to throw their precious cargo overboard and they had to watch as their prophets sunk to the bottom of the Mediterranean and they, the ship that they were aboard was threatening to break apart and they knew that there would now be no future voyages on this broken down vessel and now their, their lives are in danger. So they start asking this flurry of questions here in verse 8 which can essentially be boiled down to, who are you? Where are you from? And in Jonah 1.9, the prophet answers them. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Well, to this point in the narrative, as we saw last week, Jonah certainly wasn't acting like he feared the Lord God who is in heaven. 
Jonah instead was acting more like a petulant preschooler. He was getting what he wanted and only what he wanted. But what the sailors heard was that this man's God was Yahweh, a God they had surely heard of or were at least acquainted with to a certain degree. And what they heard from the lips of Jonah was that this man's God made the sea, the very sea from which this violent storm had been born. And what they heard was that this man's God had made the dry land, the very land that they so desperately wanted to get back to. So then they asked Jonah another series of questions. First in verse 10, they ask, how could you do this? Those are literally their words there. How could you do this? The sense here is how could you bring this calamity upon us? Why would you do such a thing? And then in verse 11, they ask another question. What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? They're essentially asking here, how can we appease the God whom you serve? How do we get these waves to calm down? How do we still this storm? Jonah answers them in verse 12. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. And as I attempted to answer for all of you last week or explain to all of you last week, and this was the number one question I was asked after the sermon last Sunday night, uh, this was not, I believe, a humble act of self-sacrifice performed here by Jonah when he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. It's not the humble act of self-sacrifice that some commentators make this out to be. This wasn't Jonah falling on his sword or typifying the future atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Rather, this was yet another example of Jonah doing things Jonah's way instead of doing things God's way. Rather than asking the captain of the ship to take him back to Joppa so that he could get his feet back on dry land and hoof it up to Nineveh and do the very thing that God had called him to do, which was to preach repentance to the Ninevites, Jonah instead asked to be thrown into the sea. In other words, Jonah was expressing here that he would rather die than act in accordance with God's will. He'd rather die than than adhere to God's commands. He would rather consign himself to the waves than do the will of God. He would rather see the Ninevites, the pagan Ninevites, perish than preach to them. Well, in verse 13, we saw at the end of our time together last week, The sailors actually didn't initially heed Jonah's request. They didn't immediately throw him into the sea. Instead, verse 13 says, they rowed desperately to return to the land. And as we saw last time, that verb, rowed, literally means to dig. The picture there is they are furiously and frantically digging into the waves with their paddles to get Jonah to dry land. And I noted last time that in doing so, they were showing him far greater compassion and far more consideration already in this story than he was showing to them. And though a part of God's people, Jonah had brought nothing but calamity upon these sailors and served as a horrible witness for God. But meanwhile, these pagan sailors who don't know Yahweh were somehow managing to reflect his character. Exodus 34 verse 6 talks about God being compassionate and gracious They were demonstrating those characteristics, compassion and grace, far more than the prophet of Yahweh himself was. Well, despite the sailors' efforts to get Jonah back to dry land, we see in verse 13 here, it says, they could not. And why? Well, for the sea, it says, was becoming even stormier against them. And that catches us up. And that brings us to the doorstep of our text for this evening where we'll be finishing up Jonah chapter 1 as we work our way through verses 14 through 17 
I'll go ahead and read it to you, and then we'll, uh, we'll work through it together. God's word reads, Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, there's a lot going on here, and just in these four verses, there are many details that are highly familiar to most of us, right? It's in this section of Jonah that we see Jonah being thrown overboard and being swallowed by this great fish. These are stories that many, even non-believers, hostile anti-Christians, people who are biblically illiterate, have at least some degree of familiarity with. And I have to say that, sadly, there are a lot of preachers who will get to this portion of Jonah knowing how well-known it is, and knowing how familiar it is. And they'll give their sermon a real clever title, like Man Overboard, or or Jonah Goes for a Swim, or, or something like that. As though the sailor's act of throwing Jonah overboard is the focal point of this narrative, when it's not. Or some preachers will major in the minors by stoking and satisfying their congregation's appetite for Bible trivia. By hyperemphasizing some of the more incidental details of this passage. Was it a fish or was it a whale? What did Jonah look like when he came out of this sea creature? What did he smell like? Was he able to breathe? Was it 72 literal hours or portions of three days that he was in the belly of the fish? And yet others can't resist the temptation to preach this section of Jonah from a slavishly Christocentric point of view in which they see Jonah as a picture of Christ. And they see the ship as the cross. And they see the sea as the forces of hell. And they see the belly of the fish or the whale as the tomb. Well, respectfully, those preachers are getting it wrong. The text that we're going to be in tonight isn't about the fish. The text that we're going to be in tonight isn't even about Jonah. Though Jesus would, later in the New Testament, pull in parts of this account of Jonah to speak of his own death and burial and resurrection, this text isn't even about our Lord. Rather, this text is about God. And this text is about God's sovereignty in salvation. Now, I do recognize that we live in a period of limited attention spans. And I do realize that we live in a time where people have shockingly low levels of biblical literacy And I do understand that there are some really interesting features of this text that we all naturally crave answers to. But let's not overemphasize what is really not the central purpose and point of this text, i.e. Jonah and the fish. And let's not underemphasize what is truly central in this passage, which is that God was relentlessly running down not only Jonah, but these pagan sailors. And how, through this harrowing series of events at sea, they apparently came to know Yahweh and trust in him. The title of the the message this evening is The Relentless Rundown. And on a macro level, the title is meant to communicate that in this book as a whole, God was unrelenting in his pursuit of his runaway prophet, Jonah. 
Well, on a micro level, meaning in the first chapter of this book, and specifically in the four verses we'll cover tonight, God was chasing down this group of pagan sailors as he brought them to himself. We'll pick it up in verse 13 as we get sort of a a running start to our passage tonight in verse 14. I want to take us back to verse 13, back to these sailors. It says, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. So these sailors here, these pagan mariners, again, are pictured as digging into the waves with their paddles. They're rowing desperately. Their teeth, you can picture it, are are gritted. Their, Their muscles are straining in their efforts to get Jonah, a man who had only caused them trouble up to this point, back to dry land. And again, note this contrast that's clearly being presented here. You have Jonah presented as this prophet of God who was unwilling to to lift a finger to bring the message of repentance to the people of Nineveh. But then you've got this group of pagan, idol-worshiping sailors who are willing to put their very lives on the line to spare Jonah. There should have been some degree of conviction for Jonah as he witnessed what they were doing for him. If he had that degree of conviction, we'll never know. No such sentiments are recorded here. And despite their best efforts we see that the sailors were unable to get back to dry land. And they were unable to get Jonah back to dry land into verse 13, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Now, as we pick it up in verse 14, it says, they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. We'll start with those first few words there. It says, then they called on the Lord. You know what we call that? Prayer. Prayer. These pagans prayed. And there's so much richness and context and irony to what's being described here when it says they, they called on the Lord. For starters, they were doing something that Jonah himself hadn't done yet in this book. Now, eventually, Jonah would pray to the Lord. We know that from Jonah chapter 2. But up to this point in the narrative, there is no record at all of Jonah having prayed. Instead, the only ones who were doing praying of any sort up to this point were the pagans on the ship. Look back at verse 5. It says, then the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God. They're praying out to their gods. Or verse 6, the captain approaches Jonah and says, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call, pray to your God. Now, of course, up to this point, these are a bunch of pagan prayers to pagan gods that ultimately will accomplish nothing But still, the contrast and the irony that's being presented here is palpable. The pagans on the ship are praying, and they're urging Jonah to pray, but Jonah can't be bothered to do so. Instead, Jonah sleeps. Well, the instincts of these pagan sailors to pray continues on in our text tonight in verse 14, where the text tells us, then they called on the Lord. Now note this essential difference here. These sailors aren't praying to their local gods anymore. They're not praying to their local deities. Instead, they're praying very clearly, capital L-O-R-D here, to Yahweh. And though we look at Jonah's words in verse 9 where he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And we think when we see that, how disingenuous of Jonah. We tend to overlook the fact of how those words would have been received by these pagan sailors when they first heard them there in verse nine. 
And the fact that the sailors, as they heard Jonah say that all the way back in verse 9, were zeroing in on one thing when he made that statement. They were zeroing in not on Jonah's inconsistency. They were zeroing in instead on the nature of the God that Jonah claimed to represent. Jonah's God was Yahweh. Jonah's God was the one who made the sea and the dry land. And that apparently clicked for them. They apparently believed Jonah and they believed that his God was not only the one who had brought this calamity upon them, but that his God was indeed the creator of the sea and the land, the creator of the heaven and the earth, the the one true God. So they're no longer crying out to their individual gods as we saw back in verse five. No, now they're crying out to the one true God, the, the living God, Yahweh. That's all bundled in with what's said here in verse 14 when it says, then they called on the Lord. Now, as we read on in this verse, we're given the content of their prayer. These are the words which rose from from earth to heaven in the middle of this fateful storm. Here's the prayer. It says, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Now, we'll start just with those words. We earnestly pray. You can hear the urgency in those words. These sailors are now beseeching God and they're, they're pleading with God. They're, they're wrestling with God. They realized very much so that their fate rested in his hands. And this is where we all were at one point as unbelievers, were we not? That we were all at this point where in, in our life where we worshiped a, a variety of different lowercase gods. Maybe not idols made of wood or, or stone or metal, but idols we had crafted in our hearts. Whether it was the idol of a relationship or or the idol of comfort or the idol of pleasure. Every one of us, we we coddled our idols. We we protected our idols. We sought solace in our idols. And while, while perhaps we never would have put it this way, we were just like these pagan sailors in that we worshiped our idols. But then there was this moment where the light came on. And there was this moment where someone shared the gospel with us and the the message of the gospel pierced our hearts and convicted us. And there was this moment where we realized in one of those like palm to forehead kind of moments that we'd been chasing after the wrong things this entire time. When like Jonah, we had been running from God and that our college professor of world religions had gotten it wrong and that our family members might've gotten it wrong and that those who have the big platforms in the world The politicians and the celebrities and the athletes, they got it wrong. And all the great world philosophers, Descartes and Spinoza and Hume and and Aristotle and Plato, they got it wrong. And that there really is only one true God. And that there really is only one way to access that God through Jesus Christ. At that point, the lights went on. The scales fell off our eyes. And like those pagan sailors here in verse 14, we for the first time, cried out to God, but now no longer as his enemies, but as his sons. That's what we see happening here in verse 14. As their prayer begins here, the sailors here are now recognizing God for who he is, Yahweh. The faithful covenant-keeping God of Israel, yes, but also the God who made the world and everything in it. And they prayed to him accordingly. Look at verse 14 again. It says, we earnestly pray, O Lord. And then we see a few different aspects to their prayer. First, we see two different petitions. And then we see them articulated at the end of verse 14. One 
significant theological truth. Look at the rest of verse 14 where we're going to see the, the content of the prayer laid out this way. It says, O Lord, do not let us perish on behalf of this man's life. That's petition number one. And do not put innocent blood on us. That's petition number two. And then there's the theological truth. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So two petitions, one theological truth. Let's take them in turn. We'll start with the petitions, which begin this way. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Now, in context, the sailors vocalize those words Again, after first trying to row the ship back to land, to get Jonah on solid ground, to to get him off the boat. But that wasn't working because the sea was growing increasingly stormier, as it says in verse 13. So apparently now their decision's been made. Uh, All options have been exercised, and, and Jonah's already given them the solution back in verse 12 when he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Now here in verse 14 the sailors realize that really is their only option left. They are now ready to go ahead and take Jonah's advice. But before they do so, they pray. First, by petitioning God and saying, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And then the second petition, and do not put innocent blood on us. And now those two statements, though though separate, they really are intertwined. They really are closely related. The two ideas really stack on top of one another. The idea is, don't let us die on on account of taking this man's life. That is, or or, i.e., don't hold us responsible, God, for shedding innocent blood. Now, the word innocent here, by the way, is not meaning or implying that that the sailors thought that Jonah was definitely guiltless. It, It appears they had more of a neutral perspective at this point. And instead, what their worry seems to have been was that they might cast a person into the sea without a fair hearing who could later be proven to be innocent before there was an opportunity for a true finding of guilt or innocence. And what they wanted to do to prevent themselves from later being held accountable by God for the death of a man who could later be determined to be innocent was plead with Yahweh this way through prayer. And so the the sailors say here in their prayer in verse 13, God, we, we aren't a party to whatever crimes this man committed against you. We really have no basis on which to to determine whether he's guilty or innocent. We can't make that determination. All we need to do is take action because time is running out and this ship is falling apart and our only cause of action or course of action remaining is to throw this man into the sea. So though pagans, and though they didn't have a copy of the Mosaic law there on the, you know, in the, the break room on the ship, the law of God still was etched on their hearts, as Romans 2 puts it. And they still valued life as every human being inherently values life. They instinctively recognized the worth of a human life. They didn't want to take Jonah's life, but in the the event that they had to, they pleaded for God's mercy here for potentially killing a potentially innocent man. They respected God's power, but they feared his vengeance. They'd already seen God's power with the storm coming upon them, but they wanted to be no part of being a recipient of his punishment. Now note, the the prayer the sailors offered here, these weren't the the frantic, fearful prayers that we saw back in verse 5, where it says that the sailors became afraid and every man cried out to his God. No, the prayers that are being offered here now in verse 14 were more tempered, more focused, more controlled, 
And that's because their prayers were now rooted in the recognition of the sovereignty of God. Look at the end of verse 14, where they acknowledge, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. See, the the prayers that these sailors prayed earlier in the verse, when they said, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. Those prayers were tempered by this recognition at the end of the verse that the Lord God does what he pleases, that Yahweh does what he pleases. And, And how profound that was for them already to be able to demonstrate at such an early age, an early stage of their spiritual development, so soon after they've called on the Lord, that they were already wrestling with and aware of and cognizant of matters related to God's sovereignty and providence in the middle of this storm. And now today, sitting here right now as detached readers of a black and white text, those who weren't actually in the eye of the storm, who didn't hear with our ears the sounds of the crashing waves and who didn't smell with our nostrils the smell of the salty spray we can read this narrative and we can find ourselves thinking, well, of course God is sovereignly working here. We can read all the way to chapter four and know that God was working sovereignly. But to the actual participants in this event, and specifically to these sailors, it was quite profound for them as pagans of all things to come to this realization, to see that it was God, Jonah 1.4, who had hurled this wind on the sea. To see that it was God, Jonah 1.7, who had caused the lots to fall the way that they did. And to see that it was God who had brought this calamity upon them. And recognizing all of this, God's existence, God's singularity as the one true God, God's power in bringing about the storm, God's sovereignty and each of the events leading up to where we are in the narrative so far, It led these sailors to the place that we all should get when we take any time to reflect on the nature and the character of who God is. It should take us to the place where we naturally fall to our knees and pray to that God and worship him that way. I know I've already quoted him. I probably overquoted him today. I quoted him one time this morning. I'm going to quote him again, but Jonathan Edwards. Because these words are just so good and so timely and so pertinent to what we're dealing with here with the sovereignty of God and prayer. And as you hear these words from Edwards, tell me you don't want to just get on your knees right now and start praying to this God. He says, God sees all over this world, every man, woman, and child, every beast on earth, every bird in the air, every fish in the sea. There is not so much as a fly or worm or gnat that is unknown to God. He knows every tree, every leaf, every spire of grass, every drop of rain or dew, every single dust mite in the world. God sees in darkness and underground. A thousand miles underground is not hid from his view. God sees all men do or say, sees their hearts and thoughts. God knows everything past, even things a thousand years ago. He also knows everything to come, even a thousand years to come. He knows all the men that will be and all that they will do or say or think. In other words, God is creator. He is all wise. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. And he is worthy of all our praise and our prayers. And the sailors here from thousands of years ago now were coming to this realization when they said here at the end of verse 14, you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. 
these sailors were coming to recognize, as it says in Psalm 115, verse 3, that our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. These sailors were coming to recognize, as it says in Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. They were coming to realize, as we see in Psalm 107, 25, that he, meaning God, spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And they were coming at the place where they could affirm the question asked in Lamentations 3.37, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? And so these sailors, they call on the Lord. They pray to the Lord. And not only that, as we will see later in verse 16, they offer sacrifices to the Lord and they give vows to the Lord. But I'm getting ahead of myself because next in verse 15, We have a very memorable incident recorded. Having made their petition to Yahweh, having prayed to him, having cried out to him, they now turn to the task that they knew was before them. Look at verse 15. It says, so they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. How much time transpired between verses 14 and 15? How many minutes? We don't know. Did they close in prayer in verse 14 and say, amen, and throw Jonah immediately into the sea? We don't know. Could there have been a moment of silence, some sort of resigned collective sigh as they waited for a sign from heaven above, from Yahweh above, and in response to their prayer before they throw him into the sea? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Instead, the text just gives us the outcome. The text tells us that after praying, verse 14, they tossed Jonah, verse 15, into the sea. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea. In other words, Jonah got his wish. Back in verse 12, what did he ask him? Pick me up and throw me into the sea. And here we see Jonah got what he wanted. He'd rather have water fill his lungs to the point of drowning in death. He'd rather sink to the bottom of the ocean floor if the sharks didn't get to him first than be used as an instrument of Yahweh to preach repentance to the people of Nineveh. And he got his wish. Overboard he went as his body splashed into the Mediterranean Sea. And we don't have any more details than that. We aren't told if Jonah was bound or tied up. We don't know if he was weighted. We don't know if he did a belly flop. We don't know how many men it took to throw him in. All we know is what's recorded here. They picked up Jonah. They threw him into the sea. That word, by the way, threw here in verse 15 is the same word we see back in verse 4 where God is described as throwing the wind onto the sea in the first place. Now, there have been some who have been very eager to find Jesus on every page of the Old Testament. There have been some who have been eager to find Jesus in every cave, under every rock, in every nook and cranny of the Old Testament. And what they do is they'll take verse 15 right here, and they'll say that this picture of Jonah being thrown into the sea is messianic typology. It really is only there to show us what Christ would later go through. In fact, there's a man, an English Baptist theologian named John Gill, who is currently the theological darling of the modern Reformed Baptist world, the the 1689 London Baptist Confession guys, who wrote this, uh, verse 15. He said, in this, meaning this tossing into the sea, Jonah was a type of Christ who willingly gave himself to suffer and die that he might appease divine wrath satisfy justice, and save men. 
only with this difference. And pick up if this is a major difference or a minor difference. Jonah suffered for his own sins, Christ for the sins of others. Jonah, to lay a storm he himself had raised by his sins, Christ to lay a storm others had raised by their sins. Now that's admittedly poetic, if not a bit dated, but it's also wrong. If Jonah personified anyone as he was thrown into the sea, getting what he wanted, still running from God, still disobeying God, still doing things his way, he certainly wasn't personifying Christ. He was personifying us. He was typifying us. Jonah looks nothing like Christ here, the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God who who always sought to do the Father's will. Jonah looks like us whenever we ignore God's word, whenever we disregard God's word, whenever we disobey his commands, whenever we, as it were, run in the opposite direction of what God has commanded us very clearly to do. Next, we're given this detail at the end of verse 15. And the sea stopped its raging. So at some point, apparently soon after Jonah's body hit the water, the sea became calm. The raging waves turned into this picture of of perfect serenity. The tempest was now tempered. The sea stopped its raging. Sort of reminds us of that picture in the Gospels in in Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus is with his disciples, sleeping on the boat, Suddenly, this massive storm overtakes them. The disciples rouse Jesus from his sleep. They say, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he rebukes them for being men of little faith. And then in Matthew 8, 26, it says, then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And we know, among other things, that proved, among many other evidence, evidences, that Jesus is God. Well, something very similar happened in the days of Jonah. This massive storm overtakes this ship, and in this case, on account of Jonah's sin. And, and here, when Jonah is finally thrown into the sea, God caused the sea to stop its raging. God brought the storm about in the first place, and he brought an end to the storm when he saw fit to do so. So Jonah's now all wet. He's in the drink, as golfers would say. He's somewhere in the sea. And from the sailor's vantage point, apparently that was that. They'd called on the Lord. They had prayed. They'd acted. They had thrown Jonah in the sea. They'd even witnessed the sea suddenly becoming calm as the sea stopped its raging. And they'd been delivered. The threat to their life was no longer there. This strange Hebrew person was apparently now the victim of the fate he deserved and the fate this sovereign God had destined for, for him. From the sailor's vantage point, Jonah was a, a dead man. He'd gone on in the middle of the Mediterranean to meet his maker and his judge. I appreciate the colorful commentary Hugh Martin offers on this verse. He sort of paints the picture of what this would have looked like. He says, it's calm. The clouds have parted. The waves are hushed. The heavens are beautiful and blue. Onward, the strange vessel flits, beating her quiet tack, unconscious of her matchless story. Now, as we turn on to move on to verse 16, we come upon another fascinating turn in the story. Jonah's in the sea. The sailors are on the ship. And with Jonah now temporarily out of the picture, the spotlight of the narrative now turns back to the crew of the ship. 
We've already seen these sailors call out to God and pray to God back in verse 14. Now look at what's described in verse 16. It says, then the men, referring to the sailors still, feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, this isn't the first time that the sailors' fear is mentioned here in Jonah. We saw it back in verse 10, where after Jonah revealed himself to be a Hebrew, verse 10, it says, then the men, these are the same men, became extremely frightened. But there we saw that their fear was anchored in in what Jonah's God, the one who made the sea and the one who made the dry land could do to them, the punitive measures he could bring. Now though, in verse 16, we're told that these these men feared the Lord greatly. They're now living in, in reverential awe of the Lord. They're now fearing him the way his own people, Israelites, Hebrews, people like Jonah were called to fear him. The people of Israel had been given this very instruction to to fear Yahweh. You can write down Deuteronomy 10, 12. It says, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Or Deuteronomy 10, 20, just a few verses down says, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him and you shall swear by his name. And we know from Proverbs 1, 7, and of course, that it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge. These sailors now feared the Lord. Though pagan in origin, they now feared the God of Israel. The book of Jonah is nothing if it's not a book of contrasts. Back in verse 9, we saw Jonah, who was of Israel, who was a Hebrew, identifying himself as a God-fearer. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, but whose stubborn and sinful and rebellious ways show that he actually had no fear. And now here in verse 16, you have these sailors, not of Israel, rather pagans, who earlier were crying out to their gods, whose fear was anchored earlier in the in the damage that the storm might cause them or their precious ship or their lives. Now they're the ones calling out to Yahweh and praying to Yahweh and acknowledging the sovereignty of Yahweh. And as it says here very clearly in verse 16, fearing Yahweh and not just fearing him, but fearing him greatly. Not only did the sailors fear Yahweh though, it says they worshiped him. Look at the end of verse 16. It says, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, some, i.e. liberal scholars, the guys I have to engage with all week to get out the gold for the messages, they object to what's being described here as being historically inaccurate and factually problematic. And because what they'll point to, they'll note, is that there's no mention of any animals on the ship. And there's no mention of any altar on this ship. Like, no kidding. Why would a pagan ship have an altar to the God of Israel? But whoever said that the sacrifice happened on the ship? Is that there in the text? No, by verse 16, that the scene has shifted. In verse 15, obviously the sailors are still on the sea. They had to be on the sea to throw Jonah into the sea. But there's no time marker connecting that to what's described next in verse 16. And all that means is that the vows that are mentioned here in verse 16 could have happened later, once the sailors were back on dry land. 
Once they could have put together some sort of makeshift altar, who knows what it looked like? We don't know. But it could have happened in a much different setting at a later time and happened just the way it's described here. All we have to work with is what the text tells us and what the text teaches us, which is that the sailors offered a sacrifice to the Lord. This would have been an animal sacrifice of some sort, the details of which were not given. And then we're told that the sailors made vows. Now, sacrifices, vows, in Jonah's day, these were considered a normal response to any recipient of Yahweh's grace and Yahweh's favor. For a couple of cross-references, you can jot down Psalm 50, uh, verses 14 and 15, which says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. Or you can also write down Psalm 116, verses 17 and 18, which says, To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. In fact, right here in the book of Jonah, if you just go to the end of chapter 2, verse 9, you'll see that the making of sacrifices and vows is exactly what Jonah does later in this story. Jonah 2, 9. He says, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Especially when coupled with the words in the first part of verse 16 where it says, then the men feared the Lord greatly. It is safe to say that what's being described here was no empty show of of piety or, or religiosity put on by these sailors. Rather, these actions, these offering of sacrifices, these making of vows, they appear to be the fruit of genuine conversion to faith in the God of Israel. These weren't empty expressions of religious sentimentality. Rather, these were expressions of, of grateful worship. I appreciate how John Calvin comments on this aspect of the sailor's response. He says, when, therefore, the sailors vowed a vow to God, they renounced their own idols. Now then, they made their vows to the only true God, for they knew that their lives were in his hand. I really think that's right. They feared God, and they were now vowing to honor him and follow him and and him alone. Now, in addition to their sacrifices, in addition to their vows, there's perhaps no stronger piece of evidence, I think, of their genuine conversion, the genuine conversion of these sailors, than the timing of their actions here in verse 16. You know, any unbeliever can put on a temporary show of believing in God or fearing the Lord, going through all the religious motions to get themselves out of a tough situation. That's the whole idea of the foxhole conversion, right? The wartime soldier who pledges to God as the bullets are whizzing over his head that he'll eventually, if he gets back to the States, start going to church and start reading his Bible and start saying his prayers only to have it not happen when he survives and gets back to the States. The foxhole conversion, it's like what Martin Luther described. A part of Martin Luther's whole story is back in 1505 when he was still a Roman Catholic and he was still studying law, he gets caught up in this massive summertime storm and he cries out to St. Anne, who is the patron saint of his family, that he will leave the law and go into ministry. In that case, it was the monastery, if she would just spare him from the storm. So she actually, or God actually spared him from the storm. 
And Luther fulfills his promise and goes on to leave the law, go on to the monastery. But it's another example of in the middle of a trial, in the middle of difficulty, crying out to something or someone to relieve you from the thick of the battle or the eye of the storm. That's not what we see actually happening here with Jonah. Actually, not at all. At what point in the narrative are these sailors described as fearing the Lord greatly? At what point do they offer that sacrifice to the Lord? At what point do they make those vows to the Lord? It was after the storm was over. It was after the storm had passed. After they'd been delivered. After the point that they could have conceivably gone on their merry way and back to their old pagan ways of living. But they didn't. It was later. When it cost them to follow Yahweh. Now in the meantime, Jonah's all wet. He's out there somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean. He's been given this assignment to preach against the wickedness in Nineveh. But conversion instead has come to these pagan sailors on the ship. Notwithstanding Jonah's own disobedience and notwithstanding Jonah's pathetic witness to them, God was relentless in running down these crewmen. He got his men. They came to fear him. Hardened mariners, now dedicated servants of Yahweh. By the way, and with apologies to those of you who really want me to dive deep into this book about it being about a fish or Jonah getting thrown into the sea and all those sorts of details with mild apologies on that score. That verse that we just went through, verse 16, is really the pinnacle of chapter one. That really is the highlight of chapter one. The fact that God saw fit to bring a group of pagan sailors to the place where they would fear him and not only that, offer sacrifices to him and not only that, make vows to him to renounce their old ways and now follow him. The fact that God appears to have brought about salvation, notwithstanding his own prophet's stubborn rebellion, is really the pinprick of light which pops through a chapter that is otherwise written in these very dark tones. As Hugh Martin so eloquently observed in his commentary on Jonah, he says, beneath the surface, while God holds the storm in his left hand, with his right hand, he's prepared deliverance. And with that, we turn from what I believe is the highlight of this chapter, chapter one, verse 16, with salvation coming to these pagan sailors, to what the world believes is the highlight of Jonah chapter one, and indeed the whole book of Jonah, which is that Jonah was swallowed by a fish. Take a look at verse 17. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Of all the passages in the Bible that have raised questions among unbelievers and skeptics about the Bible's truthfulness and its veracity, this verse sits at the very top of that list. I can't tell you how many articles and uh, books and sermon transcripts I've read from apparently embarrassed or sheepish Christians who have tried to sidestep what this text plainly teaches to make it fit with modern notions of what a fish can or cannot do. I've seen the argument made, I kid you not, that what really happened is Jonah was rescued by a ship whose name was the fish. You know, the SS Minnow or the fish, right? It wasn't a literal fish, you know, with gills and scales and the like. It was a boat named the fish that picked him up. They're so embarrassed by the text that that's the argument they make. 
Even worse, I've seen an argument made that Jonah actually swam to dry land and stayed at an inn called the fish where he recuperated for three days and for three nights. I mean, how much faith do you have to believe that? I've seen articles like that which was published in the Princeton Theological Journal in 1927 about a man named James Bartley who went missing from a a whaling ship in the Falkland Islands in the late 1890s. And he was later found, Bartley was, alive, unconscious, bleached, having been in the stomach of a whale for maybe a day or two. And the idea is, from the Princeton Theological Journal, if Bartley could have survived being in the the belly of a whale for a few days... Jonah could have too. But, but what's the common denominator behind all these apologetic efforts to prove the truthfulness of the account given to us in the book of Jonah? The common denominator is this, a simple refusal to take God at his word. What does the text of verse 17 say? And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. What does that mean? It means the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. It doesn't mean that Jonah was rescued by another ship. It doesn't mean that Jonah stayed in an inn called the fish. It doesn't even, I think, refer to a whale. You know, one common theory is that it might have been a sperm whale that that swallowed Jonah. But the Hebrew word here for fish is dog, D-A-G. And I know that's funny. A, A fish is a dog. A dog is a fish. Um, but it, it means fish. So we don't need some article from the Princeton Theological Review to help us believe that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish and then he survived. All we need is the record of scripture and without apology, and interestingly, without detailed explanation, the scripture simply states that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. The question we should be asking ourselves as we read this text, as we read Jonah, is not, could there possibly be a fish that was big enough to swallow Jonah? Instead, the question we should be asking is, is there a God big enough to create such a fish, to command such a fish, to accomplish his purposes? In other words, if God is who the Bible says he is, the fish part is easy. Well, God is who he says he is, and God's word says he appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, so that's where we leave it not with the field of marine biology, but rather with the level of biblical inerrancy. The scripture says it, we believe it, we praise God for his creative power and his wisdom, and we move on. We actually don't move on just yet because I'm not quite done. Because nested within verse 17 here is a very important word, a very important verb that I want to make sure we don't miss. It's that word appointed. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. It's a word that can be also translated prepared or assigned or commanded. And it actually appears five different times in this short little four chapter book, which is significant. In fact, let's take a real quick run through the five different instances of that word appointed. It's also translated commanded, I believe, in one of the places. We have the the one here in verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish. And then look at verse 10 of chapter two. Then the Lord commanded the fish, same word. If you drop down to Jonah 4, 6, the next are, are right in a row here. Jonah 4, 6, the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head. Verse 7, God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. Verse 8, then the sun came up 
Uh, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die. Going back to the sailor's prayer in Jonah 1.14 from tonight, the Lord truly does as he pleases. He truly does bring about what he's appointed to bring about, whether it's a wind or a worm or a fish. Again, the central thread that's woven throughout this narrative, the central theme, I hope I've been clear tonight, is that it's not Jonah. It's not the fish. We don't get to the original intent of what's being communicated here by asking what type of fish this was and what was the temperature inside the fish's stomach and what did it smell like inside the belly of this fish and what color was Jonah when he was eventually vomited up onto dry land. No, we get to the main purpose of this text by noting that it, that it says something to us about God, specifically about God's sovereignty. His sovereignty in ultimately bringing these pagan sailors to this place where they now feared him, his sovereignty in appointing this fish now to swallow Jonah, not to destroy him, not, not to kill him, not even as an act of judgment against him, but instead to preserve him and to rescue him. Because God was not, as we're going to see later as we work our way through Jonah, done with him. He still had more to do with this running rebel to carry out his sovereignly decreed plans. As we turn to the end of verse 17, we're given one more detail where it says that Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And that's really a, a Hebraic way of underscoring. Like when you hear the phrase 40 days and 40 nights, that Jonah really was in the stomach of the fish for, for three days. And we also know as we get into the New Testament, we see that there was a Jewish mentality about how to think of days and how to count days, that this could mean, it doesn't have to mean 72 hours, but it could mean parts of three days, meaning a 24-hour period and then parts of two other days. Again, though, is that what we're going to be doing our devotions in? Is that what we're going to be praising God for, that aspect of the revelation? That's not the point of the text, but I'll give it to you nonetheless. It's a three-day stay, meaning parts of three days, most likely. Here's the real point, take-home point, 84th Street driving home or cupcake eating point right after the message. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jonah was in the stomach of a great fish for three days and for three nights? Do you believe it, though you would get certainly laughed out of any faculty meeting at UNL if you made this the point that you're going to stand on, that I believe this account? Do you believe it, though, you might be looked at if you walked into several churches in our town here, you might be looked at like you have two heads if you said, I believe what's recorded here in Jonah 1.17, that a full-size man was swallowed by a great fish. Do you believe it? I believe it because it's right here in God's word. I believe it because we worship a God who is true and trustworthy and can be taken at his word. I believe it because that's exactly what God said happened. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the great fish three days and three nights. It does not take a brilliant Hebrew scholar to figure out what's happening there. And I believe it because my Savior, my Master, my Lord, my God, the Lord Jesus Christ, believed it. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12 as we close. 
Let's note how our Lord handles this text. Matthew 12, and we'll start in verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus didn't think that the fish was the name of another boat. Jesus didn't think that the fish was the name of an inn that Jonah stayed in for three days and three nights. Jesus interpreted the words here of Jonah literally and then tied those words to his own ministry there in Judea. And that's actually where I'm going to land the plane tonight with the words from our Lord here in Matthew chapter 12 because actually next Sunday night what I'd like to do is work through this passage. Matthew 12, 38 through 41, as sort of an addendum to our study of the book of Jonah. And what I want to do is I want to take up a study, a one-night study of, of how to look at types and shadows and the use of the Old Testament and the New Testament, using this as our launching point so that we can come to a place where we can rightly think about these matters, avoid pitfalls and landmines, and rightly handle the word of truth. Let's pray. God, thank you again for our time together in the word. Thank you for the study of Jonah that we've embarked on so far. Thank you for the richness of this book, the themes that just jump off the page, the truthfulness of the book, the accuracy of the book, and the lessons that are timeless in the book. Thank you for what we've learned tonight even about your sovereignty. Thank you for helping us remember your sovereignty and salvation. Certainly, if we have trusted in Jesus Christ, that ought to be something that we come back to all the time, praising you and worshiping you, that you would see fit to save wretches like us, unworthy rebels, just like Jonah. But God, thank you that because of Jesus Christ, because of your plan to send him into the world, because of his atoning death on the cross, because of his victory at Calvary, we have the ability to have a right relationship with you We can have our sins forgiven, the debt record wiped away. We can have eternal life secured and we can look forward to being in glory with you. God, I pray that this lesson and I pray that these series of lessons through Jonah would not be taken as mere historical artifacts, but rather that these are your words, your timeless words. They are profitable for our instruction, for our training, for our growth in Christ. God, I pray that you would strengthen us for the week ahead. Help us to honor our Savior, Master, and God, the Lord Jesus, in all we do. It's in his name we pray. Amen.